All right. Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Stephanie Philbay, and we'll be discussing her research paper, Healing of Acute ACL Rupture on MRI and Outcomes Following Non-Surgical Management with a Cross-Bracing Protocol. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of HUMAC Norm by CSMI. One of the best and simplest ways we can resolve a limb symmetry strength deficit is simple isolated joint training on the HUMAC Norm isokinetic system. Isokinetic resistance allows the athlete to stress their muscles at full capacity throughout the entire range of motion. Supplement your athlete rehab or performance program with a highly effective and data-rich machine by using the HUMAC Norm Isokinetic System by CSMI. To learn more about the new HUMAC Norm and refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. Inform Performance is proud to partner with Sportscientia, an emerging precision technology that harnesses the power of AI and machine learning to seamlessly capture gait analysis in real-world conditions and provide 3D depictions of the foot during both swing and stance phases of the gait cycle. This enables practitioners to further break down analysis of athletes running and moving in multidirectional movements, their forces, their max speeds, distances, steps, and more. To get more information, head to their website, sportsyenture.com. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dylan. I'm happy to be here. Right on. Um, So I am selfishly very excited for today in terms of all the things that we'll be diving into and all the research that you've done in the past. But um, for anyone who may not be familiar with who you are just yet, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your current roles, responsibilities, and maybe the path you took to get there as well? Sure, yeah. Um, So I'm a physiotherapist. I'm still registered, but now in full-time research. Uh, After working clinically for a couple of years for sports teams and in private practice, I did a PhD in the area of ACL injury and long-term quality of life. Uh, after that, I went and did research at University of Oxford for four years, and then I moved back to Australia, where I'm now based at University of Melbourne. I'm a senior research associate there in the Department of, of Physio, and most of my research focuses on ACL injury, um, developing and testing interventions to improve outcomes for people with ACL injury, as well as people who develop osteoarthritis after an ACL injury as well. So. Yeah, I've also had my own uh, experiences with ACL injuries, which I think makes me passionate about this research area. Um, And it also gives me some unique perspectives, you know, that I take into the research as well. Oh, 100%. Um, I have had my fair share of different injuries and things like that as well. Um, It's funny how like, I feel like a lot of times like the the classic uh, pathway for a lot of clinicians, um, as well as people within this kind of field is you get an injury, you have an experience with physio, and then like, that's what kind of turns you on to it. Um, but then sometimes like, at least speaking from my personal experience, like, um, looking back, sometimes the physio that you get wasn't always, you know, like high quality or, you know, best practice, even at the time or things like that. Did you, um, 
did you have a quality experience from a ACL like rehabilitation standpoint? Or was this something where you kind of like, I want other people to have a better experience than I did? Yeah. So I was already enrolled in physio when I first ruptured my ACL. So it didn't inform my decision to go into physio, but yeah, I did have one bad experience with the physio where I was misdiagnosed. I think they said it was, you know, probably a mild MCL strain and I was put on a Pilates machine and then I went uh, out and kicked a ball and my knee gave way and it turned out it was the ACL. Um, I also reflect back on the information I was given from surgeons in particular. You know, I still remember being told uh, about my treatment options that, look, you don't have to have surgery, but unless you want to run in straight lines for the rest of your life, then you'll need surgery to fix your ACL. Um, when I was 18, so I thought, of course, there's not even a, an option here. Of course, I want, I want the best treatment and I want to go back to sport. Um, and now I know that that advice isn't based on the evidence. So it's quite interesting to be able to reflect back, remember what, yeah, what I was told. Mm, totally. And a beautiful segue into our first main question. Um, so like we were talking about today, we're um, addressing, you know, the ACL and its, you know, potential capacity to heal through various means, right? Um, can you maybe bring us up to speed from a historical perspective on just sort of what led you and your team to ask this question in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So anecdotally, you know, we hear of, you know, we hear ACL healing is possible. Like you hear stories of people on a wait list for surgery and they go and have the surgery and the surgeon says, oh, it's, it's healed itself. You know, it's really rare. This is so strange, but it happens very rarely. Um, there's been a bit of research out there. There was a, a systematic review looking at whether the ACL can heal. Um, but the studies out there, you know, they're published in quite low-quality journals. They were often small studies, and so they didn't really take off and they're fairly inconsistent in terms of findings. Um, so we then performed a study before this uh, bracing protocol study where we looked at healing rates in the Canoon trial. Um, that one was also published in British Journal of Sports Medicine earlier this year. Um, and we found that in those that were randomised to initial management with rehab, 30% had a healed ACL at two years on MRI. Um, and that was interesting. Of those that were just managed with rehab but didn't have delayed surgery, it went up to 53%. But we found that those with healing on MRI reported better sport and recreational function and better quality of life compared to those who were randomised to early reconstructive surgery. Um, which that particular design was very interesting because they were blind and they weren't aware of their healing status at all. So that didn't influence, you know, their responses on these surveys and questionnaires. Um, so I'm then working with a group of multidisciplinary clinicians who are based in Sydney, Australia, and it was the initial idea of Merv Cross, who's a you know very experienced orthopedic surgeon. He's now retired. It was his initial idea to try bracing the knee in 90 degrees flexion. Um, and that was because, you know, he came across a patient who really didn't want surgery and they said, is there something else we could do? Is there something we could try at that time? And that's what they tried. So his son, Tom Cross, is a very experienced sports doctor. Um, so together they developed the protocol around that. Um, and those initial six people that were braced were over a couple of years um, and then it really took off and now they've braced uh, over 430 patients uh, through Tom's management in Sydney. Um, so I came along as a, as a researcher about three years or so ago now um, to help out from a research perspective. So they'd collected all this data in clinical practice and I said, how can we, you know, design a, 
a study and an analysis around it and get these findings out in terms of what they were finding in clinical practice. Um, so that's my role more as a lead researcher, but it's the clinicians that drove this idea and that um, really developed this in clinical practice, as well as physios have been working closely with that have developed the rehab exercises as well. Um, yeah, so I think that answers your question. I mean, for decades we thought it wasn't possible really for an ACL to heal, that it was very uh, rare, but there just isn't much research out there considering how important this assumption is and considering this has really informed our management of ACL rupture. Um, that was the rationale for these studies. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's definitely been something that's challenged a lot of my biases personally, you know, like uh, going through being a, a somewhat recent graduate from uh, PT school and all those sorts of things, you know, it's still um, throughout our education kind of taught, you know, the the same the same sort of tropes where it's like, well, if you want to run in anything other than a straight line, you have to get a surgery, you know, and if you want to do anything along those lines, well, surgery is like your only kind of management strategy. Um, and so it's very, very interesting and very um, awesome just to see the work that you guys are putting out just to kind of challenge a lot of those narratives just because um, they're frankly narratives that should be challenged. Um, but you would kind of alluded a little bit in terms of the um, bracing itself and like the way in which the surgeons may have, you know, predicted saying like, maybe if we put the knee at 90 degrees, you know, um, maybe that could be helpful for ACL healing or something like that. Um, can you maybe dive into the mechanisms behind, um, maybe like ACL healing as well as the, you know, the, the positions of the brace, the, the weight bearing timing, um, as well as the just kind of general, uh, bracing protocol as a whole. Sure. Yeah. So the, some people have tried bracing in extension. That was a practice that was done a long time ago. Um, but the initial idea was that actually at 90 degrees of knee flexion and greater degrees of knee flexion, the two torn ends of the ACL are in closer proximity. Um, so the gap between the two torn ends reduces. So following those, you know, orthopedic principles of reduction uh, and mobilization, similar to what you do for a, a fractured bone where you'd reduce the gap and then immobilize, you know, with plaster. Um, it was thought that by reducing that gap distance and then holding the knee in 90 degrees flexion, it could facilitate a bridge of connective tissue and, and subsequent healing. So that was the hypothesis. Um, so it's the knee's braced in 90 degrees flexion for four weeks. Um, after which weekly increments the knee braces increased in terms of the knee range that's allowed until full range of motions are uh, allowed in the brace at 10 weeks and then the brace is taken off at 12 weeks. And importantly, they're not inactive while wearing the brace. They're doing as much rehab as they can within the available range. So even from the get-go, there's isometric hamstrings, quads, contractions, uh, e-stims on the quads. And you're weight-bearing as much as you can safely within the available knee range. So it's pretty difficult in 90 degrees flexion, but, you know, if you can get into a bridge position, it's not as if we're trying to avoid putting uh, putting weight or talk through the actual knee joint. It's more keeping it in flexion. Uh, yeah, I think that – does that answer your question or anything else? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there is an it. important consideration. I'll just mention this because people have been um, – delivering the bracing protocol now in clinical practice, important consideration is the DVT risk. So it's so everyone's prescribed DVT prophylactics just to be careful because it's an acute knee, there's acute swelling and inflammation, so we don't want to immobilise without 
reducing that DVT risk and screening for a DVT before going into the breast. Um, there's also a window of opportunity for this bracing treatment, we believe, based on experience. So you wouldn't brace someone at six weeks post-injury. Ideally, you're capturing them, you know, within the first two weeks of injury, um, maybe three weeks. But around that time, we're starting to see some people, um, it may be too late to brace in terms of the ACLs involuted or retracted. Um, anyway, we can maybe get into that with some other questions you might have. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. No, um, I, I appreciate all the background that you're providing here. This is this is great. But, um, you know, it, back in like, I think it was 2001, uh, there was a there's a paper from Itoy et al, I think. Um, and it was a similar idea, but it was for a like bank art tears in the shoulder, um, where, you know, the the shoulder was braced in like this 90 degrees of external rotation. Um, theoretically, the humeral head would then be approximating the labrum so that there could be some sort of sufficient healing. Um, unfortunately, like this was like, you know, over 20 years ago and um, things haven't really changed in terms of uh, practice standards, just because it seemed from a, a quality of life perspective. Um, it was a pain in the butt for a lot of people to be walking around with their arm, just kind of sticking out. Um, I guess in your clinical experience, have you found it to be um, quite annoying for the participants to have their knee constantly braced at 90 degrees, or is it something that they're able to cope with pretty well? Yeah, good question. So we've done qualitative studies and interviewed people that have been through the bracing protocol to understand their experiences. Yes, it's challenging during that initial four weeks. Uh, no one that's been through it regretted going through it. And the people that I think have the most interesting insights, are we've now treated 60 people with the bracing protocol that have had ACL reconstruction on their opposite knee previously. So they can compare the two treatment approaches so, you know, if we're talking about rehab only compared to rehab only and the brace, then yes, it's a much added burden. But anyone that's gone through reconstruction can tell you that those first four weeks after surgery aren't great either. So you've got swelling, you've got pain, you're on a lot of pain meds, you can't move your knee, you can't drive, you're often having difficulty walking. So that's kind of what we should be comparing it to here. Um, so it's not a clear cut greater burden. Um, in saying that, it's really important to have, you know, social support, someone to help out at home can really help. There's different ways of getting around. Some people opted for mobility scooters, uh, below knee mobility scooters. So it's it's really that initial four weeks that's quite challenging. And then you've got the weekly increments where you can see clear improvements in your range, and I think that's quite motivating. Um, you've also got more movement and starting to do more things. So, yes, those initial four weeks are a challenge, but everyone said, you know, they'd go through it again and they didn't regret their experience uh, with the outcome that they achieved on the other side. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, I've not experienced an ACL surgery, but having worked with uh, quite a few, it's, it's definitely understandable knowing the, those initial, you know, four weeks are not pretty, pretty much either way or any direction that you go. And so um, kind of anchoring that to a previous perception if they've had that surgery before is definitely helpful just as a comparison. Um, diving in a little bit more into just the specifics of the paper, you know, we'll, we'll go into a little bit more of the tangible takeaways for some of the listeners in a little bit, but um, from just kind of like this 10,000 foot view, can you just give a slight bit of a summary in terms of kind of like the results and the conclusions of the paper that you guys wrote? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, this paper was in the first 80 people that were braced. So it isn't an overly large number, but one of the strengths is that it was 
every one of the first 80 that were braced consented to take part. So there isn't any missing uh, patient data there. So using the same criteria that we used for that earlier study in the Canoon trial, where I said uh, at least one in three had a healed ACL with rehab and no brace. So that same criteria, which is um, that the ligament's continuous on MRI. So it was ruptured at baseline, discontinuous, and then it's continuous fibres. There's some variability in terms of how that looks, and we can, again, maybe get into that in a little bit, but I just want to say what I mean by healing initially is continuous fibres. So using that definition, 90% had ACL healing on MRI at three months after injury. So at the straight um, after the brace came off, three months time point, 90% had ACL healing. Within that 90%, it was a 50-50 split between uh, what we call a grade one heel or a grade two heel. So grade one being continuous fibres but a bit thicker on MRI and a grade two continuous fibres but it could be a bit thinned or it could be elongated or have a little bit of a sag. Um, so we can talk about how they may function a little differently a bit later. But, yeah, the main finding was that, firstly, 90% had signs of ACL healing. So we then compared uh, 12-month patient reported outcomes as well as other outcomes like return to sport and knee laxity on a Lockman's and pivot shift. And we compared that between those with a grade one heel, so continuous but thickened, versus either a grade two heel or no heel. And the reason we combined those two groups was because very few people had no heel. Um, so there wasn't a large number there. And actually the majority who had a no heel actually had um, fused to the PCL or they'd fused to the lateral wall. Um, so that could also provide a degree of knee stability. We're not quite sure. Anyway, so comparing those two groups, so let's call it a, a more healing or less healing or a more favourable heel versus a less favourable heel or a more normal-looking ACL and MRI versus a less normal-looking, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we found that the better heels did better uh, in terms of knee function on the Lisham scale, in terms of quality of life at 12 months. Um, on the Lockmans, everyone had a normal Lockmans test compared to their opposite knee, and 92% had already returned to sport by 12 months. So that's better than the other group, but it's important to note that the other group also did quite well on average. Um, so those numbers are more uh, seem to be better or comparable with what we normally see after ACL surgery. So although, although their knee function scores were worse, they were still a median 94 out of 100, 100 being the best possible, whereas the higher here was 98 out of 100. So they're both kind of good scores here. 62% um, had returned to sport with less healing you know, which is comparable with what we usually see after ACL surgery. So the message there is um, a lot of people experience some ACL healing. Higher grades of ACL healing were doing really, really well, but also the lower grades appear to be doing quite well, possibly comparable to surgery. Um, yeah, I think that's the main takeaway. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Uh, the, I think you did that beautifully, and I think it was helpful to just kind of appreciate the fact that although these uh you know more normal looking acls um seem to be doing better than the less normal acls um it still appears that there's uh, a lot of recovery and a lot of you know it's just because you're at a, a grade two uh acl healing doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately have to go back to surgery after trialing for six months or things like that um this is a 
this is an interesting question and something that I always like posing to researchers having found these relationships or found having found these um, outcomes. Do you think that, you know, with the idea of ACL healing and then functional outcomes, do you feel as though that there's like this directional relationship between these two variables um, as in like one is influencing the other? Or do you feel like that there's maybe um, some other variable that we're not sure of yet that is actually mediating this outcome? Um, no, I do feel like they're associated or uh, potentially causative. And the reason is is that Canoon randomized control trial again, when they didn't know their healing outcome, but they reported better outcomes than the surgical group and then the non-healing group. Um, and that's in terms of sport and recreation and quality of life. So the comparison in that study was a little different. So we, we did a, a normal appearing ACL. Um, we did any any of the continuous, so that more healing, any continuous, we combined the the better and less looking heel, if you will, together and compared that with the non-heel and the surgical group. So even when combining all of that, they were doing better on average than the surgery group two years after injury. Um, So I think that's really strong evidence that what we're seeing in terms of ACL healing is relating to better function. Um, I think it's quite, you know, crude to dump everyone together and say that all grades of healing have the same function. I don't think that's the case. I think there's likely a continuum and the more normal appearance it is, the better it's likely functioning. Um, But again, we need to really understand that comparison, which for most people is reconstruction. Um, It's removing the ACL and replacing that with graft tissue, which doesn't function like a native ACL. Um, So we really don't understand even how the more modified heels, if you will, or um, slightly thinner, slightly elongated, um, maybe healed to the PCL. We don't know how that function and stability compares with a graft um, and not all grafts are created equally either in terms of their orientation and their uptake and other things. So um, that's what we're doing now is we're planning a randomised control trial, uh, a large multi-site trial to compare outcomes after the cross-bracing protocol versus ACL reconstruction. That's a design we really need to understand um, to answer these research questions. Yeah, 100%. I'm a uh... Looking forward to seeing that trial when it comes out. Um, kind of what you're alluding to here is um, when we're seeing something like a, a grade two healing on MRI, could you maybe walk us through, you know, what your thought process is based on the evidence um, on whether or not you're kind of deeming that as a quote unquote functional ACL um, and then maybe how you're going about educating a patient on that kind of process as well? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so grades, I'll walk through the grading system that we've used in both studies. Um, it's the ACL OAS MRI grading system, which has uh, several items to rank ACL continuity, both the baseline and the follow-up. In saying that, the entire MRI grading system wasn't designed to assess healing. It wasn't its primary aim. Um, and we're working on uh, new ways of characterising both ACL rupture in relation to healing and healing outcomes. So there may be new ways and new features we can look at which will provide more useful information and maybe more closely related to function. Um, so that being said, I'll, I'll introduce the system that we used for these papers. So grade zero is a normal appearance ACL. It's as if it was never injured. It would look like it would in the other knee. A grade one, as I mentioned, fibres are continuous, but it could be thickened in one spot. Um, we think that what we're seeing at three months after injury, um, we think it's too early for it to be a grade zero. It hasn't com- 
completely healed. And we think those grade ones may become a grade zero over time. In the Canoon trial at two years, we saw no grade ones, only grade zeros or grade twos. So it could be that those grade ones at three months have progressed on to uh, grade zeros by two years. So then a grade two is a bit of a broader category um, on this criteria. So it's continuous fibres that they could be thinner in a particular spot or all the way along, or it could be elongated or with a bit of a sag. Um, So what we're seeing in clinical practice in that grade two is more variability in function. So some people will function fine. They'll have a great knee function with that grade two. Other people won't. Other people may have an unstable knee and be recommended surgery. Um, So it could be that we don't quite know yet, you know, it could be the elongated ones are less functioning and maybe the thin doesn't matter as much yet. So we need to explore that a bit further. But I would say they're a bit more of a mixed bag. But again, on average, they're still reporting very high outcomes. Um, So some of those people with a grade two will be recommended surgery. Others will do really well. On average, they may be comparable to reconstruction, but we don't yet know. Mm, Yeah, totally. And I think it's, it's really easy for a lot of us. Like once we see like the data and the numbers in front of us to get um, hung up on those and be like, well, that was only a grade two healing, or that was like only this kind of healing. But the, the overarching goal for these sorts of things are for the people that we work with to get back to the things that they're, they enjoy doing, whether that's sport, whether that's general activity. Um, and this idea of like almost the, the concept of equifinality comes into play in my head in terms of, um, you know, multiple routes getting to the same end point. Right. And so like you can have different levels of healing as your paper had demonstrated in terms of whether that be grade one, grade zero, or grade two, even grade three, returning back to their daily activities and daily, even like sport and things like that. Um, it's, I think it's always important to kind of anchor that just because I think a lot of times when we see like, oh, well, that's a grade two. And so we're not going to um, recommend that for somebody. But right now, that's still a decent chance that this individual can still get back to doing the things that they enjoy doing, regardless of what the image shows, you know, and I think that those are some of the things that we need to consistently point back to. I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, We can get a bit caught up on trying to achieve the gold medal ultimate heel, you know, grade zero or grade one at three months. But I think we're doing people a disjustice to not recommend it if we think because we think they may get a grade two heel because we don't yet understand. And people always have the option of going and having surgery. That option's not being taken away from them if they try this first. But if they have surgery first, they'll never have the chance of healing naturally. Um, People's perceptions around reconstruction surgery, we've just done an Australia-wide study around this uh, with around 1,000 patients, Um, you know, they think that reconstructive surgery is fixing their ACL. They often don't understand exactly what's going on, that it's being removed and, and replaced with the tissue. Um, some people don't want to know that level of detail because it's easier to be a bit naive and just go in and, you know, get a bit of a fix and also help with potential placebo effects and other things. But I think explaining those expectations, um, explaining that, hey, you know, we're seeing that, so if it is a brace that they're going to try, we're seeing that around 90% that, had a fully ruptured or discontinuous ACL now have rejoined, but some of those look a bit different. Some are thicker, some are thinner, and some are a little bit long. We don't yet know how that influences function. Um, It's possible that your ACL could rejoin, if you will, but your function will still not be adequate for you to be able to do the things you want to do, and then surgery would be a really good option for you. 
So understanding that pathway, um, setting those expectations, but also acknowledging where we still do have knowledge gaps and we need more information to understand. Um, yeah, I think that that's important. Yeah, oh, most definitely. Um, shifting gears here just a little bit, um, talking about kind of the differences between the, the cross racing protocols versus like a, a surgery. Um, the way I tend to explain in ACL reconstruction is this idea of you kind of have two different injuries, right? You have the ACL tear, um, and then you have the surgery itself. A lot of rehab is really trying to just tamp down a lot of the negative effects associated with the surgery, be it AMI, range of motion, pain, you name it, right? Um, all things that can be common after a surgical intervention. But um, with the cross bracing protocol, you're really taking that second chronicle injury out of the equation. Um, based on that, in your experience, do you feel like the, the rehab process for the cross bracing cohort felt accelerated compared to a standard ACLR rehab? Once they come out of the brace, obviously you're limited once you're in the brace. Some people had, you know, some reduced range of motion when the brace comes off. You've got some muscle wasting, but that tends to resolve fairly quickly. Um, so anyone with like a flexion contracture, and there wasn't a lot of people, but they all resolved within two weeks of rehab. Um, and then you need to get the strength back, which there's a little bit of a lag as you've been in the brace. But once that comes back, absolutely, some people are wanting to return to sport, you know, before six months. And earlier on, they did return to sport early and some of those re-ruptured uh, in, you know, contact tackling injuries and whatnot. And so then it said, oh, hang on, let's be more cautious and actually put a limit so you're not returned, not even thinking about it before nine months and ideally more like 12 months because we don't quite understand the timeline of ligamentization and healing, but we want to give it the greatest chance, you know, as well. So I think being cautious around the return to sport because some people feel great really early and want to go and do everything. Um, yeah, so that's that's really important. But I would say once you get over that sort of initial four or five months that then it does seem more accelerated um, in a lot of cases But because you're right, like um, some of the long-term effects of surgery can be quite persistent. You know, we know in terms of um, neuromuscular deficits, also now cortico, cortico control of the actual muscles as well as proprioception, persistent swelling and inflammation, which can be quite common, um, those sorts of things, and pain as well, which can persist after surgery, which are, can um, impede progression through rehab. Mm, yeah, there's there's definitely a, a sequelae of uh, results that can happen from the surgery that um, honestly are, are very uh, – no, I don't know. Uh, very difficult to manage a lot of times from a rehab standpoint, right? You, you, this these individuals can be six months out and still experiencing some considerable, you know, anterior knee discomfort with some loading, and it may just be due to the fact that there's a big chunk of their patellar tendon that was removed, right? And so, like, they're still having to like go through those sorts of processes and all of that. But um, going through here, um, I like being able to kind of comb through the protocol a little bit. Um, I really enjoyed how you and your team kind of like developed the protocol itself, just because like we had mentioned before, um, earlier weight bearing, you know, a lot of times like allowing for, you know, some quad and hamstring co-contractions and all these sorts of things. I think that, that it was brilliant. Um, one thing that I sort of didn't necessarily see was this like, uh, open kinetic chain, you know, strengthening from a knee extension perspective. Um, is that something that you normally omit or do you have concerns about these open chain loads on a healing ligament? 
Again, it's just within the available range. So that's not going to be possible whilst you're, you know, locked at 90 degrees or you've got minimal range. Um, but no, there's no limitations around what's actually performed within the knee range allowed in the brace. Going in, we can kind of chat a little bit about um, table two from the tape, from the paper. Um like kind of diving into that a little bit more, both groups uh, were pretty similar in a lot of the characteristics when we're comparing um, like this grade one healing versus this kind of less ideal grades two and three. Um, but the areas in which there weren't necessarily like the same characteristics um, were the area in terms of the ACL rupture characteristics. I think you guys did a great job in the discussion section addressing the fact that it's kind of out of the scope of the study to have conclusive findings in this area. Um, but could you maybe speak to some of these factors from the ACL rupture characteristics and um, what may inform, let's call it future research in terms of what may be indicators for not as advantageous healing? Yeah, absolutely. So we've designed a, an analysis actually to look at this is that question, which is MRI-based predictors of, of ideal healing after the bracing protocol, um, which we can now do having more than 430 patients with data. But in the initial 80, there were too few to look at this or to answer this question. Um, based on clinical experience, we're seeing very strong patterns in terms of the kinds of injuries that are more likely to get ideal or less ideal heals. Um, and that's in terms of the nature of the ACL injury, as you can see on baseline MRI. So based on that table, in table two, um, we reported, you know, whether the femoral origin of the ACL was intact or partially avulsed. And those numbers um, were quite different, you know. So um, looking at this now, with a more ideal heel, 83% had the femoral origin of the ACL intact, but with a less ideal heel, only 8% had the femoral origin intact. So that's quite different in terms of percentage. Um, so we think that may be relevant, which kind of makes sense. You know, if it's ripped off the bone, it may be more like uh, less likely for those fibers to to rejoin to a bony attachment rather than to a ligamentous attachment, um, which may explain why in some cases it's thinner um, if it hasn't rejoined at the bone where the partial avulsion was. Uh, so the other things that seem to be relevant is the degree of displacement of the ACL within the intercondylar notch. So sometimes on MRI you'll see that it's, it's at, the bundle's actually flipped and it's sort of accumulated and the fibres aren't standing up in a line, they're rather flipped over within the knee joint. And so it may be that that's less likely that those people with that disrupted fibres are going to you know, stand up, realign and reconnect with the other half of the ACL. Um, in saying that, there's been a lot of exceptions, you know, where people with these characteristics have ended up with perfect-looking heels despite having a partial avulsion and, a, and disrupted fibres, but we think it's probably much less likely. Other things that may end up being important is the gap distance between the two ruptured ends of the ACL. So are they sort of aligned and a fairly small gap or are they retracted and the gap's really wide? Um, that could turn out being quite re relevant as well. Uh, that would be the key ones. I mean, in terms of concomitant injuries, uh, approximately half of people in this first 80 had a meniscus injury, so that didn't appear to, you know, be related to, to healing 
interestingly, all but one person became asymptomatic with their meniscus injury. So it could be that going through this brace actually provides an ideal environment for meniscal healing at the same time. Um, we don't yet know that. Yeah, so that would be the key characteristics on MRI at this stage. Perfect. I, I love that. Um, previously, you know, um, dating back, you know, a couple, maybe more years ago, um, we had this concept from a non-operative management um, where we had like copers versus non-copers. Um, do you consider somebody in this trial that was a, a good healer? You know, if they have like restored a, a grade one to a grade zero ACL, um, do you consider that person to be a coper or do you feel like we're in a new realm that necessitates almost like a whole new label altogether? Yeah, such an interesting question, right? Because we've tried as researchers for a long time to predict who will be a coper and who won't be a coper with rehab only, but we haven't had a great success in predicting that. And I feel like personally that ACL healing is a massive missing piece of the puzzle here. And what I want to know is, you know, is pretty much everyone that's a COPA actually got a degree of ACL healing and that's why we're calling them a COPA? And is it the non-COPAs that, that don't heal and that's why they don't cope with rehab only? I really think we need to explore this and I think healing may play a really big part in defining or in what we have defined as coping and not coping over time. Uh and the reason for that is, is again, those patient-reported outcomes because we know that those with healing are reporting really good outcomes. So that makes sense that they may be those ones that are coping. What we don't understand and we need to be careful of now, um, historically we assumed that the rehab, the reason people were coping is because they'd regain neuromuscular control and it's these muscles that are providing functional stability in the absence of an ACL. But if we flip this assumption and assume that, you know, at least one in three have a healed ACL or some healing, now we can't assume that it's the muscles alone providing this stability and the role could actually be the ACL fibres that have healed. Um, so I think it really opens a door for people with research in this area to look back on their data if they do have MRIs. Um, and they can then look back in COPAs and non-COPAs and look at healing status on MRI if they have this data would be super interesting. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't call them COPAs. I, I do think it, you know, if it was a ligament anywhere else in the body and it was fully ruptured on MRI and then it appeared healed, we wouldn't call them coping with an injury. We'd probably call them healed or to some degree anyway. So, um, yeah, probably do need different terminology as well. Yeah, 100%. I do think it's a, it's an interesting discussion to have just um, because it like you had touched on brilliantly, you know, there is this assumption that there are there's now um, an active support from the surrounding musculature rather than the maintenance of this kind of passive uh, stability that would be maintained from a, a ACL healing. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we have the we have like this data that shows that a lot of times, even when you, you know, put in a, like, you know, you surgically reconstruct an ACL, the, uh, from a proprioception perspective and from a feedback perspective, there can be difficulties, even like you had mentioned before, from a cortical perspective, like there's, um, difficulties within the, a lot of those different neural patterns, um, from ACL reconstruction and ACL healing. And I think there, there could be, you know, this idea from a biological plausibility perspective in terms of, just having a uh, a true, I guess, uh, quasi-native ACL, being that it was a healed ACL, 
um, may be helpful in terms of providing actual better uh, proprioceptive input rather than that could in turn help out from a, um, I should say, like from a neuromuscular perspective. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that I'm very interested in in terms of following up longer term. Um, obviously, re-injury rates, but definitely knee osteoarthritis as well. Because, you know, we could hypothesize if we are avoiding that extra trauma of surgery and um, there's healing of a native ACL, that it would result in lower rates of OA in the future. That would be a huge finding if that was the case because we know that's such a concern and we need to reduce OA rates after an ACL injury. Uh, Don't know yet, it's too early to look, but that's certainly something that are interested in following it up. Um, Another thing that was a really interesting finding was, so of those with a a grade one heel at three months, four of them re-injured. But of those four people, two of them were high trauma accidents uh, falling off ski, ski, downhill skiing, and the other falling off a bike at high speed. And the other two were a rugby contact injury or an AFL contact injury. So they're potentially likely to have occurred if it was a you know an intact ACL. And um, some of those had returned to sport quite early as well. But of those that had re-injured in the hole, um, two people actually of the first 80 wanted to go through the bracing protocol a second time rather than have reconstruction. And interestingly, they achieved a, a grade one ideal heel a second time after going through the brace. So I think that's very interesting because we know once you tear an ACL graft or if you have revision reconstruction surgery, your prognosis is very poor. You know, it's much poorer than the primary first time you tear it and first time you have surgery. But if it's possible an ACL could actually rupture and heal naturally multiple times, I think that gives rise to other possibilities as well. So that's quite interesting, I think. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And it also... I feel like just uh, puts a little bit more merit on the uh, non-operative strategy just because it it seems unlikely that you would be able to pursue that uh, cross-bracing protocol after the fact if you had a re-tear from a ACL reconstruction surgery, right? Just because it is not a native ACL and there's likely diminished capability for that to heal on its own afterwards. Absolutely. I mean, again, it's an assumption, but I wouldn't think a, a ruptured graft has healing capability, but I mean, who knows? Let's try not to assume anything. But there's really no research out there that I'm aware of, um, so very little, if any, investigating non-operative management for people who rupture their ACL graft. But I've been approached by, you know, a lot of people who've injured their ACL and they contact me saying, I want to try rehab only and I've just torn my ACL graft. And I sort of have to explain to them, actually, it's not the same. It's not the same situation. Um, You know, you've got graft tissue in there. You've got screws in your knee joint. It isn't native tissue. We don't know about um, non-operative management. There's not evidence to go by for those people in terms of their treatment options. We know revision surgery outcomes are quite poor, but we don't know how it compares if you just manage that non-surgically at that point. Um, So I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, definitely. Plenty of unanswered questions here so far. <laughs> um, yeah. From a from a perspective here, I, I feel like this 
paper has some very clear implications for rehab providers, surgeons, and various other uh, stakeholders within a medical or rehab plan. Um, like we had talked to talked to to each other before the podcast started, um, this we have a large viewership that's uh, in this sort of sports science and strength and conditioning realm of things as well. Um, what performance based implications do you think your paper touches on um, that would maybe affect the decision making with these members of a team as well? Uh, so sorry, the question it wasn't around elite athletes; it was more around uh, rehab. And performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just to see if there were any, you know, other types of implications that you could see from a uh, strength and conditioning side of things. Obviously, the realm of sports science is, is quite new, but um, just understanding if there are any um, maybe takeaways that you could provide from somebody who might not necessarily be a rehab based provider. Sure, strength. I think there's a, a big role for strength and conditioning um, professionals here, and. In the paper, we have as an attachment included the full protocol, including rehab exercises performed at each phase, um, as well as after the brace was removed. So then it was a high-quality rehab, goal-orientated, so goal-orientated progression through the different stages until return to sport testing and return to sport. Um, So that really didn't differ much from what's most recommended post-ACL reconstruction, but there will be some different considerations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, post-surgery, you may have more of a focus on things like proprioception and resuming, you know, timing of muscular contractions and trying to avoid wasting of the VMO and that sort of thing um, that can happen post-surgery. But there's also a lot of room for creativity, I think, with the rehab program during the bracing protocol within the limits of that brace. So we've put up the exercises that were followed, you know, for the first 80 people. Um, but I think strength and conditioning personnel have the expertise to be able to think outside the box as well, um, you know. And we're not just we're not just focusing on the quads and the hamstrings and the calves in the brace knee, but we're thinking full body. We're still working on you know cardiovascular fitness, upper limb strength, opposite knee, hip. You can still be doing things around the hip and pelvis. Um, and that's important as well for people's quality of life, especially if they're athletes and they're used to staying active. So creating strength and conditioning programs within the limits of the brace that people can still be working on and be as active as possible whilst in the brace. Yeah, totally. You know, just because there may be one limitation in a certain region doesn't mean you can't train others. Um, but no, I love that. Um, so moving on, like wrapping up here a little bit, um, a passion of mine personally is just kind of this area of research and evidence appraisal um, and really just trying to tease apart the idea of like what a research paper is saying versus what it's really not saying. Um, If I'm a clinician who just read this paper, what are some things that you hope I'm taking away from it as the author? Um, And what are some things that people maybe shouldn't take away from this paper just yet? Yeah. So I always try when, when writing papers to be as conservative as possible. And I don't want to try to inflate any findings or take them out of context. So I really want to kind of acknowledge the limitations of the design when I'm summarising the research findings. So I I try to do that as much as possible um, and hopefully I've done it here. But it is a retrospective case series. So that research design, you know, I think it means that the data were collected in the course of clinical practice. So these patients didn't enrol into a study at baseline after they injured their knee. 
Um, so that's something to be aware of. You know, it's not as robust design as a prospective study. Um, and also the ideal research design um, to show that one treatment is effective or more effective than another treatment is a randomised controlled trial. They're very difficult, uh, expensive and difficult to run and coordinate. That's what we're planning on running. So in an ideal world, we'd have RCT evidence for any intervention that we're using, especially ones involving orthopaedic surgery because they do have risks and they're expensive and they're invasive. Um, but the reality is very different from that. So there's a real lack of evidence for the vast majority of treatments that physios use and orthopaedic surgeries. So many surgeries go on without supporting clinical trial evidence. Um, you may be aware of, you know, placebo surgical studies. So, for example, uh, the placebo study um, in the meniscus injury that was performed in Finland um, where they had a, you know, double-blinded meniscal surgery where one would be surgically uh, repaired, I believe it was, or was it meniscectomy, and the other patients would be randomly allocated to a sham surgery, you know, where they'd still receive the incisions and they'd sort of fiddle around a little bit in the knee and then sew them back up without actually touching the meniscus. And there were no difference in terms of those two, two groups in terms of clinical outcomes. So in the ideal world, we'd have that kind of design for all orthopedic surgeries, but that's, you know, really not realistic. Um, so anyway, so I think the gold standard is clinical trial evidence. But if we were waiting for clinical trial evidence for all treatments, then uh, patients wouldn't get many treatments at all. So it's weighing up what's ideal with what's realistic and, and what's actually happening now in clinical practice. Um, I wouldn't want to be saying everyone should be doing this until we have clinical trial evidence or a higher quality of evidence. But in saying that, patients want to do it, clinicians want to deliver it, and they're doing it anyway. Um, they were doing it before this paper was published based only on the conference abstract that we published. So we've been contacted now by over well over 100 patients who want to do the treatment and well over 100 clinicians from around the world. Um, and acknowledging the limitations, if they do it safely and they want to deliver this treatment, we can't really, uh, you know, stop people. And I think it's more important that they're doing it based on the clinical experience that we now have with over 430 people. So considering safety, considering DVT risk at baseline, um, you know, not keeping people inactive or immobile, doing the rehab, you know, as it has been done, because that's the best available evidence that we do have. Um I think I'm starting to see like there's a lot more buy-in with this treatment than there is with rehab alone. We've had evidence for years now that rehab alone has similar outcomes to reconstruction surgery. But yet in Australia, and I think it's similar in the US and Canada, you know, 90% of people are having surgery. So I think there's something around the idea that you can facilitate healing that's getting a lot more buy-in both from clinicians and from patients who are really interested in this treatment. Um, yeah, so a complicated answer. In the ideal world, we'd have clinical trial evidence and we're planning that and that's what I want. Um, but we will see people using this treatment and wanting it before the trial evidence is available. Yeah, beautiful. And Steph, I, I just think you guys did a, a great job, especially in the discussion section, of touching on a lot of those things in terms of, you know, being cautious with what you are saying and what, what you can say and what you can't about the paper. Um, and I think that 
you know, commonly it's from a, from a person like myself, a, a clinician side of things of a, an interpretation error. Um, but also occasionally some of, sometimes the, the papers come with conclusions that they weren't even, um, you know, maybe even powered to, to study or to say. And so I think it's important. And I, I commend you and your team just for doing a great job in terms of just saying, you know, this is what we found and this is what this says versus saying, well, now we shouldn't do any ACL surgeries ever because ACLs can heal and we're all perfect, you know? Um, so yeah, I would just say, so here, um, wrapping up a little bit, given that a lot of our listeners are in the fields of strength and conditioning, rehab, sports science, um, who would you recommend that we have on next for the podcast? Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. How about someone, a patient that has been through the cross bracing protocol and has had ACL surgery? to find out from the patient's perspective how those pathways compare and, interestingly, how their knees compare now. Um, so how does it feel to have a graft in one knee and a naturally healed ACL in the other? Really, you know, delve into that function. How's it, you know, how's it really feel for the patient? I think that would be super interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I love that idea. That's a, that's a super interesting answer. Um, well, Steph, Thank you so much for coming on and just chatting about all of your expertise and especially this paper. I think it's opened up my eyes a lot and I think it'll do a lot of awesome things for, you know, leaning into future evidence, just like you guys are doing as well as, you know, maybe stifling other conversations for other researchers, maybe around the world. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your stuff or even perhaps connect with you? Uh, so Twitter's the best place to find me. Um, so at Steph Philbay, F-I-L-B-A-Y. Um, that's where I share all our research, but also our resources. So we're developing a patient decision aid for ACL injury to provide a, a balanced overview of, of surgical and non-surgical treatment options. That'll be available. The website that that will be available on will be aclinjurytreatment.com. But it isn't quite finalised yet, so it won't be there yet. Maybe uh, by the end of 2023 it'll be available. We're just piloting it at the moment. But I'll share things like that as well as we're developing um, a free e-learning course in ACL injury management for clinicians, and that'll be for free, that we'll share on Twitter as well. So Twitter would be the best place to, to reach out for sure. Awesome. Well, Steph, thank you so much again for being on the show. Um, and I really appreciate your time. And I think this will be awesome for all, all of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Right on.